Welcome. You may be a member at Rochester Church of Christ, or you may follow us regularly online, or you may have been referred to this by a friend. Either way, we're glad you're here. This is Adam Hill, Minister of the Word at Rochester Church of Christ, and I hope that this message will speak into your life with the good news about Jesus. So if you uh, judge by word count among commentators, you would easily be convinced that the chapter that we're studying today is the single most important chapter in this book. More words, and I know you're wondering why do I have you standing still? Because I can make you sit down, but I'm going to have you stand up in one minute. Is it a deal that you'll still stand up? Okay, you can have a seat for a second. But don't get too comfortable because I'm going to have you stand right back up. More words have been spilt about how to best interpret these words in chapter 20 than the rest of the book combined. So why? Is it because what's communicated in chapter 20 is so vital and central to the gospel truth of this book? Not, not really. I mean, it's true and it's related to the gospel for sure, but what I'm saying is today we encounter what is probably the most difficult passage in this book. But Adam, you say, we've worked through the lampstands and the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. We worked through the dragon and the lady, the beasts and the false prophet, the cosmic battle and Armageddon. And how can you say we've only now gotten to the most difficult part? None of this has been easy. All right, well, let's do a quick recap to see where we, how we got here, and then we'll read together. Quick recap. In chapters 14 through 20, God has been battling through God's enemies to deliver God's people. We saw two weeks ago as God was victorious over Babylon, the city that stands in opposition to God's city. And last week we discussed the defeat of the beast and the false prophet by the rider on the white horse whose name is Faithful and True and who is known as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And today we will complete the battle against the opposition to God by seeing God defeat the dragon for good. Well, sort of. All right, now let's read together and see what we got. Stand, if you will, in honor of the reading of God's Word, recognizing the authority of God. Revelation chapter 20, I'm going to read us the first three verses. The Bible says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time.
Heavenly Father, I pray today for wisdom. I pray today for discernment and for enlightenment. Most of all, today I pray for hope. And I pray that the gospel will be proclaimed, will be believed, will be acted upon. Speak, Father, for your children are listening. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right. So in just three verses we ran into quite a bit. An angel appeared with a key to the abyss. A uh, bottomless hole, a pit without end that serves as a prison for the dragon, Satan, to be bound for a thousand years. And then... He must be set free for a short time. All right, we made it three verses and the questions start coming in pretty fast. First off, what's the abyss? It's a bottomless pit. Tell me about this thousand years. All right, that's going to take a minute. And why does he have to be let out? Great question. That's going to take more than a minute. I want to do my best to not get bogged down here because I I can't wait to share with you the great gospel news that's in this text. Um, But first I I kind of want to give you the lay of the land for the way this has been read. And basically throughout history there have been three broad approaches to this particular text and interpreting it. Okay, three broad approaches uh, that, that, that each of them, and I want to be clear about this, each of them have textual support. Verses that they will appeal to to say, see, this makes sense. Each of them have theological scholars and textual scholars that are considerable. Each of them have significant weaknesses, criticisms that are valid. And each of them has enjoyed a time of prominence throughout church history. Here's the lay of the land. Here's what we'll start with. We'll start with something called post-millennialism. Fantastic. You came to church today and said what I'm looking for is slides that have big words on them and random arrows going all sorts of directions, well, good luck for you. That's what you're getting, (laughs) at least for the first bit. Like I said, I don't want to get bogged down here, but here we go. Um, What we have with post-millennialism, the way that it reads this is it's going to take that number about a thousand years, right? It said there's going to be a thousand years, and it's going to take it literally. We're talking about a literal 1,000 years. But I want you to pay attention to the word post in post-millennialism. Now when we say millennials, I don't mean 20-year-olds. All right, I'm not talking about 20 and 30-year-olds. We're talking about a millennium, a thousand years, as mentioned in Revelation 20. The millennium comes, I I want to be clear about this, Christ's return, which you see there in the top right, happens after the millennium. Did you catch that? It's post-millennial. 
That's where the name comes from. If you got it, say got it. It's all about when Christ's return is. We're talking post-millennial. And basically the thought is in post-millennialism, and this is currently the least popular approach, so we're going we're to dispense with it fairly quickly. The basic premise, though, is that the world is going to get more and more Christianized, better and better, closer and closer to God's will, that there will be inaugurated a 1,000-year reign of Christendom known as the Millennium. After which, because we have perfected God's kingdom here on earth, King Jesus will come and take his throne. All right. So the weakness here is probably pretty easy to spot. Because the real problem here is well, history in the real world where things aren't getting better and better. All right, this was a really popular view in the 1800s, early 1800s. This was the dominant view in the West. And then there was a civil war. And it became a little bit more difficult to believe that things were trending towards better and better. And then there was the Great War. Understand, it's not called World War I yet, because we're not sure there was going to be a second one. But World War I happens, and most people become sure the world's not getting to be a better place. And then World War II and the Holocaust happens, and this view kind of dies. Because now we're really certain the 20th century taught us anything, it's that we're not getting closer to God's kingdom. You see, the criticism of postmillennialism is that this view doesn't take seriously the depravity of humanity. And Scripture itself, Matthew 24, for instance, seems to suggest the world is going to get worse before Jesus returns. Okay, so if there is a thing called post-millennialism, guess what? There's a thing called pre-millennialism. And if in post-millennialism Jesus comes back after the thousand years, in pre-millennialism, guess when Jesus comes back? Before. You guys are sharp. I love it. Jesus comes back before the millennium. So we have what's called the church age. We're in it. Christ will return, and then there will be a thousand-year reign of Christ. When Christ returns, Satan will be bound. We have the thousand years, and then Christ returns again, and we have the age to come. This has enjoyed prominence most recently, especially among evangelicals and reformed Christians. And they have imported words into the Christian lexicon that might not be here without this view. Words like rapture, which you won't find in your Bible. And in particular, a great emphasis on when the tribulation, the great tribulation happens which the word tribulation is in your Bible, but maybe not the way they're referring to it, as a great suffering at the end time. And I'll tell you, this is the view of most of the preachers that you would see on TBN. 
And while those are not the best representatives of Christian ministers, it's understated, they do show you the power of the PR that this position has enjoyed among Bible believers. You see, the bottom line here is not that the world gets better and better, it's that the opposite, the world gets worse and worse. Hence, Jesus needs to come back and fix things at some point. And when he returns, Satan is bound. And then that begins the 1,000-year reign of Christ in which the nations aren't deceived and the gospel advances. But if in post-millennialism, the problem was it didn't take seriously, the criticism was it doesn't take seriously the depravity of humanity, the criticisms of this view are, first, that it doesn't take seriously the power of the gospel or the purpose of the church right now. Ephesians 3.10 says that the church is God's plan A for communicating God's wisdom to the universe. This particular view seems to say the church age is kind of a happy accident it gives us something to do while we're waiting for Christ's first return, and then the gospel will really be able to grow. Because Satan will be bound. But right now, we're sort of biding our time, hoping for something to come in the future. There's the church age, then there's the thousand year age, and then there's the age to come. Here's an issue with that. In your Bibles, there's no mention of three ages. The church age, the thousand year age, and the age to come. There's, an interest, there's a mention of two ages. Okay, there are the present age and the age to come. Look at Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great, and, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, we have the present age, and then we have the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, at the end. So there's the present age, and there's the age to come. Look at Luke chapter 18, verses 29 and 30. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, no one who's left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. Okay, this age and the age to come. I could have also shown you Matthew chapter 12, 32. Matthew chapter 13, verses 37 to 43, where Jesus makes the same distinction. How about Ephesians chapter 1? Starting in verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength that, that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Pay attention. For above, far above, all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that's invoked, not only in the present age but also in the one to come. Present age, age to come. Two of them. We are living in the present age. 
Okay, the present age is also called the last days. Look at Acts chapter 2 in, the, in Pentecost. Here is this moment where Peter begins to stand up with the eleven and he raises his voice and he addresses the crowd. Fellow Jews, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people aren't drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says... I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Okay, that's happening now. And he calls them the last days. In the last days, the Spirit will be poured out on the church. That's happening right now. We live in the last days. Okay, I could also show you Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where he says, now in these last days, God has spoken to us by sending Christ. That the last days are the time, according to the New Testament, between Jesus' birth and his second coming. Has Jesus already been born? Yes. Has he returned? No. So where are we now? In the last days. Last days have been lasting about 2,000 years up to this point. Could last a lot longer. This view also requires, this premillennial view also requires two returns of Jesus. One to inaugurate the millennium and then one to inaugurate judgment. But Scripture doesn't mention two returns. Scripture mentions one return. I look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's a very important text in this regard. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 20, it says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all are made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end comes. That's the beginning of verse 25. Then comes the end. Okay, so I just want to run back through that real quick. Verse 23, each in turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he returns, when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end. What wasn't mentioned? That thousand years and then another return. Okay, we got Christ's return, then the end. All right, I could, I, the first Thessalonians 4 shows you the same kind of moment. First, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. We believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of the call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Did you catch that? Christ returns. We're all called up together. Heaven forever. There was not a mention, again, of another thousand years and then a second return. Okay, I'm not trying to belabor the point, but I do want you to see that there's, there, there's some issues that I take with this particular view because to put it plainly, the millennial reign of Christ has to be now because there's no room for it anywhere else. And that leads us to the third view in the lay of the land. We had post-millennialism, we had pre-millennialism, now we're going to get what's called amillennialism. Okay, and the point of amillennialism says the thousand years is not literal. You see, both of the other views, post-millennialism and pre-millennialism, take the thousand years to be a literal number. Amillennialism says, you know, most of the numbers in Revelation have been symbolic up to this point, why stop now? And so we're going to read it and say, that number doesn't have to be literally a thousand years. But it does need to fit in with what we're talking about. And so when we think about it, based on what we've seen with those passages we looked at just a moment ago, because it's symbolic, we can understand why it's going on its 2022nd year at this point. For amillennialism, the moment between Jesus' incarnation and his second coming, his return, the church age, is the thousand years. And Satan was bound by Christ at Christmas. Okay, remember when we looked at Revelation chapter 12, we saw this weird story about this dragon and the lady who's bearing a child. That was Christmas. That's the Christmas story told in a weird way because that's when Satan is bound. That's when Satan is locked up. And so now we live in an age right now where the devil is restrained and bound and the church has purpose. The church has the gospel that can now proceed throughout the nations uncontrolled by Satan. Yeah, okay, so some of the group over here is getting it. <laughs> that was really good news. I told you I couldn't wait to get to the gospel in this text. There's great gospel in this text. And it's that right now, the devil is, we get this confusing idea that there's God and there's the devil and they're both equal and they're going to fight it out. They're not equals. The devil knows they're not equals. And right now, the devil is confined And he's going to be defeated forever at the second coming. But Adam, I have one question. Sure you do. But, and most of you probably feel it. I just told you the devil is bound. Satan was bound at Christmas. So what's your question? Well, but you live here, right? In this world. 
and it doesn't really feel like, seem like, look like, sound like Satan is bound, or at least not all that well. So why, if Satan is currently imprisoned in the abyss, how do you explain all of the wickedness in the world around us? Oh, what a great question. <laughs> Let me start with a couple observations about this text. Revelation 20 does not say that evil is gone from the world. Never said that. Beyond that, oh, here we go. What if most of the evil that we do is not the direct work of the devil? It's the direct work of the flesh. That part of us that is sold in rebellion against God's will. Now understand, the flesh is active. And the flesh takes its influence from the world. And the world is active. The devil may be locked up, but the devil's influence in the world is still active, shaping our rebellious flesh. So it's not that there's no longer evil in the world. As a matter of fact, there's plenty of it. But that doesn't have to be, that doesn't have to mean it can't happen if the devil's locked up, because the devil is not the sole perpetrator of evil in the universe. Second, Revelation 20 doesn't say that Satan has no effect on the world right now. You say, hold on, Adam, you said he was locked up. Yes, I did. But read closely. If I wanted to be a stickler about the text, and sometimes I do, I would point out that Revelation chapter 20 and verse 3 says that the purpose of binding is simply to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. Not to get rid of all evil. Not to prevent any wickedness from happening, to, to stop the deception of the nations. That's what it says the binding is about. That's all. And I want to be clear, when I say that is all, I don't mean that's a small thing. Oh no, this is a huge thing. So this is what my group up here was starting to realize. That if Satan can't deceive the nations anymore then right now it means that Satan is presently unable to stop the gospel from thriving in nations across the world. And so the gospel has room to thrive across the earth in every nation, even our own. Listen to me, this is the gospel. Satan is powerless to stop the spread of the gospel. Luke chapter 10, verses 18 to 20. Listen to the way Jesus explains that He's just sent out the 72, and they come back, and they said, we saw amazing things happen. We were able to drive out demons. We were able to cast out all kinds of unclean spirits. It was amazing. And then listen to what He says in verse 18 of Luke chapter 10. He says, Jesus speaking, He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Keep going. 
I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Okay, Satan cannot stop the spread of the gospel. Powerless to do so. Can't deceive the nations so that when they go out and they proclaim the gospel, they find success, they find listening ears, they find a willingness to repent and turn from sin and to turn towards Christ. He says, that's the authority you're going to have. Think about the great commission of Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus came to them and said, all authority. What does the word all mean? All. I love it. Y'all got it. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. They're not being deceived anymore. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. You see, if the binding of the devil hasn't already happened, then how is the Great Commission ever going to be accomplished? If the devil can deceive the nations, how is he going to say, go and baptize them all? In fact, Revelation 20 is the reason that Matthew 28 can even happen. Look, think about it. This is what we've seen. Ever since Jesus showed up and preached to all people, not just the sheep of Israel, but the sheep that are from another pen. And it's what we saw in the book of Acts as the church spread throughout the nations from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And it's what will happen throughout history that's resulted in a church of faithful Christians meeting here in this place today. You understand if Satan hadn't been bound, we wouldn't be here. I don't know about that. Man, I don't know about y'all right now. Maybe I didn't explain it well enough. But at least get excited that you get to hear the gospel right now. Because Jesus showed up way back there and then in that place, we here in this place now know the gospel. You see, Satan is bound, but he's still active. And the forces of Satan, those who serve the dragon and the beast, who've been convinced by the false teacher, are certainly still at work in the world. And I'll tell you, while that's great news what I was talking about, there is still something left in this text, right? That according to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 3, Satan has to be let go for a little while. That's not good. He must be set free for a short time. Something's coming. Adam, why must the devil be set free for a short time? 
I've studied that question for years. I've especially spent a good deal of time with it over the last few months and weeks because I knew this sermon was coming. And I've read and studied and dug through so much material and I've arrived at something. And you may not love it, but this is what I've found. I don't know. I do know this, that Jesus says, don't lose heart, I've overcome the world. I know that Jesus says, the one who's in you is greater than the one that's in the world. And Kenny, you can go ahead and bring your team up. I don't know what it will look like that short time. But one thing I notice about it, one thing that fills me with great hope and excitement, one thing that gives me passion, and one thing that keeps me doing what it is that I'm doing, is that we have to realize that right now there is an open door for the gospel that will not remain open forever. That eventually there's a time coming when, when Satan's going to be let out. When, when there's going to be a moment when what's happening now where the gospel has an opportunity to be proclaimed to all peoples, all nations, all tongues, all groups. When the gospel has been let out, there's going to be a time when we won't be able to proclaim the gospel like this. We have to take advantage of right now. There's a reason we believe in the urgency of the gospel, and that's because there's a time coming when something's going to change from what it is right now. And right now, Satan is bound. Right now, I need to live as though I actually believe that Christ is reigning and the gospel cannot be stopped. Because if you keep reading through chapter 20, you find out by the end that every trace of rebellion against God is gone. The just like the beast went into the lake of fire and just like the false prophet went into the lake of fire so also the dragon goes into the lake of fire so also those who are marked by the beast are going into the lake of fire so also all those who have set themselves in opposition to God are removed. There is nothing left of opposition to God. That by the end of the chapter, there is no evil in the universe that will withstand the love of God forever. And this is grace. This is gospel. This is a reason to live, not just for the future, but to live right now. Because in the name of Jesus, Satan is defeated. Amen? Amen. And faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Rochester Church of Christ is called to live God's gospel, truth, and love with the world so that we all may find life together in God. We are not a perfect people, but we long to live in ways that help people see God and the kingdom more clearly. To learn more about our family of faith or to connect with us, 
visit www.rochestercoc.org. Remember, you are loved and chosen.